Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert. We'll get to our interviewee in just a minute. Um, you'll be pleased to hear it's not me actually interviewing them this week, so you might get some intelligent questions. Um, before we get there, though, we do want to look at the week that was. A couple of items caught my eye this week. Um, the first one is probably the most important, and that is Refinitiv going to a five millisecond speed on their binary multicast data feed. Um, this brings me into line with EBS market. So we now have the two primary venues, both at five milliseconds, which I think now gives us a uniformity as an industry that we can now ask the question, what length should last look times be? Even I have to accept, and I don't want to, as regular listeners will know, um, even I have to accept that you know, last look does have a role and will not go away. So therefore, um, previously it's been very random and very you know sporadic in its application i think now with refinitive making this move and joining the ebs which has been there for quite a few years obviously so i mean this is long overdue i would argue um but at least now we can get the situation where we have a debate as an industry about what should the length of these windows be as you're well aware i'm about to put my own two penneth in here um i think you know we're looking to go why should anyone be held for longer than 10 milliseconds at least in g7 because you know, the fact is that's two price updates. You know you can do the credit check in that time. Um, you know you're not getting smacked elsewhere in that time. So why then does, should it take longer than 10 milliseconds? Now, um, I understand regional players in regional currencies, they have their nuances and they have the lack of volumes and sometimes the lack of data to justify, A, the cost of taking these prime, these extremely fast feeds. And before anyone gets in touch, yes, I do know real-time data is available, but five milliseconds is still pretty quick to me um so yeah these lps in these currency pairs all we need to do is just have a debate in the industry and say right what do we think the consensus hold time should be in these currency pairs to get that market check now you know you can still argue as i will again and again and again um if you don't like the price you're making why are you making the price if you don't want to be hit on it all you're doing is giving people an information price you know, back in the day, it would be, can I have a price for information only? You weren't allowed to deal on it. That's effectively what we're giving people with Last Look anyway. But if we are going to do it, let's at least have some consensus over how long we are going to hold that, that price for or that trade for. Could be 50, could be 100 milliseconds in the regional currency pairs. It could be different by each currency pair outside of G7. But the fact that we've got both primary venues at five milliseconds tells me that in those majors and in the G7, we should be at 10 milliseconds. Because that's where I think the um, the value will be for the client, and I think we are also at the stage where we can probably have the discussion where in those platforms that do support last look should be encouraged to step up um, and challenge their LPs. You know, why are you holding for so long? You know, why are you holding somebody for eighty-seven milliseconds or fifty-two milliseconds, whatever it may be? Now, there may be decent answers to this, but the questions need to be asked. And the answers, when they come back, need to be provided to the liquidity consumers. So to me, we're going to have like last look like it or not. This move means that all platforms should, in theory, be able to impose a last look threshold, an independent last look check. Um, much as Unix Fastmatch when it was launched did with their leak suite protection. 
you take the emotion out of the issue by saying, okay, on my platform, you are going to be last look, your last look window is going to be conducted, sorry, last look check is going to be conducted by the platform and it's going to be conducted at 10 milliseconds. You can say 15 or 20, whatever you like, as long as it's transparent, it's going to be conducted at 10 milliseconds and the customer that you will be notified of the trade or the customer will be notified of a reject immediately following that. That way the information doesn't get to the um, LP about what the customer is trying to do. So there's no worries about that one. And the customer knows, you know what? Sorry, the price, the market moved. It happens. Um, so I think then we can take the emotion out of it. We also, with this move to five milliseconds, should be looking at the customers again, because again and again, a theme that keeps on coming up over the past couple of years, especially since the global code has focused our attention on it, is customers not taking enough responsibility for what's going on. They're still, and, and this is partly because they have had decades of banks in particular going, rolling over, yeah, whatever you want to do, that's absolutely fine. Yep, you know, the customers at the center of, the center of everything we do, the customers also need to have some responsibility. So in this situation, they should be asking their platforms, how long am I being held for? If I'm being held for longer than 10, 20 milliseconds, they should seriously complain about, about this. Because the thing is, if they don't ask those questions at a platform, particularly if they don't know who the LPs are, but if they don't ask the question of the platform, how can they seriously complain about being last looked? They know it exists. So at least, at the, at the very least, what we need to do is monitor and think about having a discussion about it's regulating the length of the last look window, take the emotion out of the issue. And if we do, well, I'll probably end this podcast because if, if we haven't got anything last week to talk about, then, you know, what else is there? More seriously, it would actually mean we could move on to other things. Um, the other issue that happened this week was um, we had the month end fix. So just a few observations on that. Um, there was still slippage. Um, it was, I guess, during the window, eight to 10 points on euro dollar. Um, some of the others were a little busier. There was pre-hedging action in the Commonwealth in cable, um, Aussie in Canada. Um, and yes, I, as I've been told several times previously, this reflects the flow that's going through the window because the fact, you know, that euro dollar stayed above the print for the fix shows that it was a fair reflection of supply and demand. Absolutely. Totally get that. But this is a matter of function of liquidity. The fact that the market has to go up in that window also reflects the fact that we're trying to push too much through. The, the demands for flow at the fix is overwhelming the market. So yes, this is a true reflection of supply and demand, but just as we've done with COVID-19, or we're trying to do with COVID-19, why can't we not just flatten the curve? You can't hide this flow. We know the flow's coming, but why can we not just flatten the curve? Um, it seems to me now is the time that we need to get even noisier. And it was really good, as I mentioned in last week's podcast, that the GFXC you know, have, have highlighted this publicly. But it's now time for the industry to make a serious move to share the analysis that exists and to have new ones if you like. But let's actually get into the asset owners and the, customer, the end customer saying, this is why we need to lengthen this window. It won't affect anything you do. It will just still be a WMR fix but it will be on a longer window because this way 
you can then go back to worrying about actually making money because at the moment it strikes me that asset managers or asset owners whoever is responsible for the use of the fix what they're doing is they're saying to me tracking error is more important than performance and i don't think that should be the case for anybody that's investing you know let's let's face it all of our money as well as their own on the subject of um of the fix actually in liquidity i mean something else has just struck me is that we we are getting a lot more analysis of what liquidity conditions look like in market and and it's it's helpful but we need to remember it is historic um i'm not convinced it's the game changer that some people are trying to say it is you know, this monitoring liquidity conditions because it is backward looking you know ask any trader liquidity can be great until you know let's take an example a global macro hedge fund who share remain nameless but we all anyone in the market would know who it would be suddenly slaps three lps with a couple of hundred at the same time having said i'm only asking you guess what liquidity disappears so liquidity is a, you know it's a function of the market when when the market moves liquidity providers tend to disappear um which will bring me back to the who is the real lp part of this um this this section of the podcast but ultimately if we can stop bad behavior by the customers in terms of you know multiple hits um then we will be able to get a better function of liquidity but then we also need to make sure that that functional liquidity is strengthened by the fact we have good honest robust um and you know strong liquidity providers who will stay in the market no matter what the conditions because you know i still come back to the oldest adage about liquidity as there is and it's going to be about the fourth or fifth time i've mentioned this on this podcast and this is by the way episode 100 century for uh for pnl um liquidity you can get as it means you can get as much done as you like when you're wrong. When you're trying to trade with the market, guess what? Liquidity disappears. So anyway, that's enough from me for now. We'll be back just after the break with uh, this week's guest. Did you know that if you sign up before September 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or... Pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. So last week saw um, a rash of rulemaking by, the, uh, by five U.S. federal agencies um involving you know reg 80 the volcker rule initial margins so all things that are critical to the market's future in many ways um and uh, julie ross founder and um, editor-in-chief of profit and loss um caught up with justin stalder from mercury strategies to uh, get the lowdown on what actually happened in washington dc last week hi i'm here with justin slaughter he's a partner with mercury strategies in washington dc He's also proprietor of a law firm in his own name, Justin Slaughter. And from what I understand, he's currently uh, doing this interview on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike. So thank you, Justin, for joining us today. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, it's simply the case, as so many of us know, because of the disruptions of COVID-19, sometimes we find ourselves uh, having different days than expected. I had to ferry a child to her grandparents uh, today, and now I'm dealing with work over here but it's good to talk to you as always julie a real pleasure 
through multitasking. <laughs> so in, last week, there was, there was quite a bit of uh, action in Washington. We had a week ago, five federal regulatory agencies finalized a rule uh, modifying the Volcker rules, prohibition on banking entities investing or sponsoring hedge funds known as covered funds, and the rule that pertains to prop trading. Um, just wondered what, in your view, uh, are the key takeaways, the most important uh, part of those rule changes and how they might affect the market? Thanks for that. To answer the second question first, I think the most significant change uh, in that uh, rulemaking action by the five agencies was to allow uh, companies covered by Volcker to invest directly in venture capital firms. Now, what the thing to remember about Volcker is that when it was, when it was originally theorized back uh, over a decade ago now by Paul Volcker in an op-ed, um, the idea was that because certain very large uh, Wall Street banks, global banks, are so inherently systemically risky to the system, and if they make a mistake, it could take everything down, we should therefore have a strict absolute bar on their use of proprietary funds to trade. And over time, that uh, theoretical hardline view has slowly been whittled down. First in 2013, during the Obama administration, when the Volcker rule was first finalized, there were exemptions made, some people questioned. Uh, in 2018, 2019, when additional uh, changes were made under the Trump administration, there were additional exemptions granted. And now we have uh, a major change, of course, by allowing uh, these covered entities to invest directly in a number of uh, vehicles, which you would assume would not be allowable under the Volcker rule. One of them, of course, venture capital already mentioned, another family wealth management uh, firms, yet another customer facilitation firms. And in addition, there's changes under certain circumstances to allow for parallel investing uh, between by banks as well as the firms they're investing in. So you're slowly seeing the boundaries of Volcker kind of decreased. Partly that's a function, I think, of time passing. Partly it's a function of political change. But I should note, these changes are controversial. Uh, one of the people who was heavily involved in authoring the Volcker rule inside Dodd-Frank took to social media uh, last week to basically claim in his view, uh, the rule is now dead. That is notable primarily as a sign that this change may not be that long lasting. Uh, it is possible it will be reversed even before firms can really take advantage of it. And some of the regulators who voted on this uh, change had quite vehement remarks about that, in fact, in public, even for regulators who generally speak quite softly and in fairly measured terms. So I think that, that, that DC one's the biggest part, but also what it symbolizes is that we've started to see a real rollback to some extent but it may not last. Okay, yeah, you, uh, you were mentioning uh, some of the strong dissent. Uh, I noticed that the Federal Reserve Board's Governor, Lael Brainerd, um, dissented strongly, saying that uh, some of the key changes uh, weaken the core protections and will allow banks to return to risky activities. Um, do you agree with that, or, or is, there a, is there a more nuanced answer to that? It's a great question. What I would say is I found that statement by Governor Brainerd very striking for two reasons. One, I was actually surprised how short it was. Uh, it was pretty terse for her from her usual writings, which indicated to me she's trying to get this out to a more popular audience or perhaps to use a different word, a more political audience. The concerns she has fundamentally are the twofold. One, that this is contrary to the original intent of the 2013 rule and the statute, but also 
the fear that by doing these exemptions, they will be abused. I should note, uh, at one point, she mentions, of course, in her dissent, the idea that uh, this allows for opening the door for firms to invest, quote, without limit in credit funds. But also, uh, under the proposed definition, quote, venture capital funds are indistinguishable from private equity funds. So her concern is that this rule relief will be pulled so far beyond what is currently imagined that it will become a very generous loophole and destroy the rulemaking. I think also it's worth noting she couches part of her opposition to this change out of fear that the current disruptions we are experiencing due to COVID-19, which are quite profound, obviously, could spur a banking crisis. And therefore, it's more important than ever that we not uh, loosen these regulations at this time. Her concerns, I would say, are legitimate. It's not, it is the case that sometimes when you do a regulation in government, it gets pulled beyond uh, what you expect over time. But I think the real tell here is Lael Brainard is potentially someone who could become the chair of the Federal Reserve uh, in three or four years if the Democratic nominee Joe Biden were to win the election. If that happens, I think this is signaling she may herself push to reverse this. And at the very least, the Democrats are likely to pick people to serve on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors who agree with Governor Brainerd rather than Chairman Powell or any of the other current governors. That's a, that's a watch this space kind of answer, I think. <laughs> Sadly, it's true. The, the rule takes effect October 1st. Um, so in some ways, there's only a brief period of time before we see whether or not the people who wrote this change will get to have time to really see it implemented. I, I think there's a very real chance that it uh, gets reversed in 2021. But I'd also note, speaking as a former government official, it's quite dangerous to do big rulemakings like this in an election year for a whole bunch of reasons. One of which is if the rule gets caught in litigation and then your party leaves the government, the next administrator, before it's finalized, before the litigation is finished, that new party can then pull back the regulation under uh, a settlement with a court. The other risk is something I don't want to go too much detail on called the Congressional Review Act. This is a process by which the Congress and the president can reverse an action by a federal, federal agency under simple majority vote under a short time frame. Um, it only applies in effect to rules that uh, are finished about eight months or seven months before the end of a presidential term. We are within that window, though. And that is another risk that they, the uh, various agencies' leaderships took by doing this at this time in this manner. So I sadly think this is very much a wait and see to see what happens. Okay. Um, and then also last week, uh, the CFTC held um, an open session um, in which five rules were approved, withdrawn, advanced. Um, can you give us a brief overview of these and then a bit about what you think uh, may have the biggest market impact? Absolutely. And I should say it was, I believe it was uh, two proposed rules. <laughs> Two final rules, and as you said, a rule withdrawal, which I've actually never seen before from the CFTC. Uh, CFTC's had a lot of meetings recently, and that is, I'm told, a major and deliberate choice of the new, relatively new chairman, Heath Tarbert, who believes in getting what I'm told is, quote, points on the board. He wants to get rulemakings done, proposed, finished as fast as possible. He's very cognizant of the calendar. So of these uh, five rules, three of them, uh, I should say two of them actually were related. 
One was the proposed uh, rule on electronic trade risk, trading risk principles and the withdrawal of the proposed rule and supplemental proposal for regulation automated trading, aka regulation AT. So this is a rule that's been going on now for literally five years. I worked quite heavily on regulation AT when I was at CFTC. It was first proposed in uh, November, December, I believe it was December of 2015 and then was re-proposed uh, very late in 2016. This was an I the idea that CFTC was going to put in rules on how comps most persons who used automated or algorithmic trading could operate, record-keeping, requirements of best practices, cybersecurity, et cetera. It was quite controversial. Uh, then Commissioner Chris Giancarlo dissented quite strongly from the uh, second proposal, I believe, over the issue of source code, concerned that this could make CFTC get access to the most precious commodity of an algorithmic trader, which is the source code. The rule has been in limbo for years. Realistically, no rule can actually be finished uh, without a reproposal if it lies fallow for about two years under accepted jurisprudential standards under uh, US law. What uh, Chairman Tarbert has pushed for, which he got with a 3-2 vote, was basically withdrawing that rule. So it can basically now it ceases to exist even as proposal, but it could be reproposed. And then on a 4-1 vote, issuing this new proposal on risk principles. And this is basically putting various principles inside part 38 of the CFTC's regulations that would require uh, designated contract markets to have their own rules for how to deal with algorithmic and automated trading. This was attacked vehemently by Russ Benham, one of the other, Rustin Benham, one of the other commissioners. Uh, finishing it in the near future is going to be tough, but I'm told they're going to make a real college try at it. This is probably the biggest remaining regulation the CFTC is going to work on this year. And it's an open question if they can get it done before the calendar turns to 2021, given, of course, a lot's going on, as we've already discussed. Another rule that was done was a final. This is the post-trade name give up on swap execution facilities. This is another longstanding odyssey of a rulemaking. Uh, this was, of course, originally brought up in 2014 when some small CEFs were complaining that because uh, CEFs as well as traders, because CEFs were having to give up the names of after a trade, it was giving certain entities in the markets and information asymmetry that then let them, some would say front run, others would say take advantage of other market participants. And there was an aborted effort to uh, make it such that the uh, name give up was no longer required uh, under the previous uh, regime at CFTC under, under Chairman Tim Massad. That is now passed. Uh, this is now done by under Heath Tarbert and it was uh, in a bipartisan unanimous rulemaking even. So this is going to be, I think, very interesting. Some people think this will substantially increase the uh, competitiveness of the uh, CEF marketplace. We're going to see, obviously, these CEFs have been low volume for a while. But this one's finished, at least. It's not going to change because it's a final. Uh, the other one, of course, two other ones are much smaller. One was uh, literally an extension on the margin rule for uh, compliance date for initial margin for smaller entities. Uh, not much to say about that. It's just an extension because there's a lot going on, obviously. And the other thing, of course, is another exemption uh, from the swap clear requirement for certain affiliated entities. Uh, similar, I don't think that's going to be a major one. CFTC already has pretty significant uh, relief given on inter-affiliate margin. And I should note, the same five regulators also did another rulemaking on this topic that makes them move closer to the CFTC's pre-existing uh, pre position on this subject. So biggest one in terms of impact uh, without changes going forward is post-trade name give up chain rule. 
The biggest one we're going to have a discussion about over the next several months is probably going to be these uh, electronic risk trading principles. Okay, and and you know your the on the lower end, the last one you mentioned, the uh, delay to smaller entities uh, compliance dates for initial posting initial margin. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see this uh, really ever kicking in? It's been delayed a number of times. I do. I mean, this is, I think, this is part of phase six. And one of the arguments they made is this is necessary because of COVID-19. Um, putting aside the possibility that we'll never escape COVID-19, which I have to for personal reasons, uh, I do think these will kick in eventually. I think you're, you've seen progress to this point. I, I, I bet they kick in probably in 2023 at this time, but I do think they'll kick in. I should know the extension was to 2022. It wouldn't shock me to see another extension of another year before the end of this year. Yeah. Um, we have a few minutes left. Uh, on Tuesday, former CFTC Chairman Christopher Giancarlo addressed Congress um, talking about the concept of a digital dollar. Um, were you able to catch that hearing? I was. I watched it actually on video after the fact. It was, I'll tell you, it was an extremely well-attended hearing. I think seven or eight senators uh, commented uh, with pretty detailed questions and engagement, uh, which is atypical for a Hill hearing on anything FINRAG, but especially on FinTech. I thought it was, it was notable to me because you see in this hearing, uh, obviously former Chairman Giancarlo was speaking along with uh, the head of Paxtos and a law professor from Duke whose name escapes me, um, about the digital dollar and the possibilities for it. And in general, there was a common trait in Washington that is, shall we say, uh, a bit of an illusion of consensus. Namely, almost every senator praised the concept of the digital dollar for various reasons. Some like it because it will allow uh, our infrastructure to be more robust. Some like it because it will reduce transaction costs. Some like it because it could allow for the unbanked to have more options. And still others, notably Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, like it because it could ensure uh, continued American financial primacy versus, in particular, China. And yet, when you dig into the details, you see there is actually quite a lot of division about what to do. And this was most seen, I think, by the questioning of uh, Senator Tester. So, uh, Montana. Former Chairman Giancarlo was laying out his white paper that he'd worked on saying, here's the digital dollar program is a great idea. It's imperative because of other countries moving this space because our own country is seeing private firms moving here. We should start in particular having pilot programs, which is I think a great idea to start pursuing uh, by various federal regulators. And the first part of the hearing, everyone was praising, it was expressing some minor concerns about privacy potentially, or about the, you know, will this give access to people? But Senator Tester uh, expressed his real anxiety that this only works to uh, favor a few people in this country unless we have broad, widespread broadband inter internet and was also concerned by the lack of any kind of federal regulation. And his concerns, I think, underscore the idea that this could be an easily achieved effort, that there could be congressional action to push for a digital dollar is probably a mirage. It's more likely going to have to come from the regulatory community, probably from the Fed directly, because it's hard to see Congress actually understanding this topic quickly enough and getting enough confidence in its understanding to move in the space. And I should note, a, more than one senator, I believe, said, I want to have more hearings. I want to learn more about this. 
the takeaway I got is that Congress is at best still in information gathering mode, and we are months and probably years away from any real bill drafting. That would not surprise me. <laughs> I should know that was amazing. Another former CFC chairman, Tim Massett, also did a white paper at Brookings on digital dollar uh, within the last month. This topic is getting a lot of attention from former CFC chairs at this time. But I, I will say um, it could be a function of how so much of our news cycle is occupied by things unrelated to even the you know, aspects of the financial industry at the moment. I did not see either that or this testimony get as much discussion as I would have hoped for or, see, or expected. Okay. Well, Justin, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your drive home to uh, talk to me and our readers. Always a pleasure. Drive safely. Thank you. I do still find it strange. It's probably me being naive. Um, listening to Justin there, I do find it strange exactly how much politics in the U.S. impacts the financial regulatory agenda. I guess it's, um, you know, it's partly the fact that, you know, with all these changes and proposals, as Justin's saying there, they can be reversed or stopped in just what will be just a few months' time, thanks to the election. Um, it kind of, so you know, I, I find it strange that we exist in a world where the financial regulatory agenda or the regulatory community can be a lame duck community. It's not necessarily a good thing for the for the industry because it does make this environment, you know, the regulatory environment a little bit too volatile for most people's liking. And that's very hard to plan for. But um, thankfully planning for a regulatory agenda is not my issue. Um, and um, well, thank you to Julie and Justin for an interesting chat. I wish both of them and all of our American listeners a um, happy independence day from the colony you know, for one of our ex colonies. Um, and um, I can't forget the Canadians from earlier this week. Happy Canada day for you guys as well. I'm not going to get into doing national days. What I will get into is um, thanking you for listening and we'll be back next week um, as planned. Have a good week.